They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Well, uh, good morning again. This is a privilege to be here. Caleb and them, as you heard, are at a retreat Slackers. Just kidding. It is good to be here. And uh, you've gone through a series in Acts, and it's a privilege for me to carry on uh, in this series. I open my Instagram feed and see some really interesting things, as I'm sure you do. And it mostly goes something like this this is uh, what I saw. I saw someone, a friend, uh, at a conference in the UK who had that week met with people individually from 42 different nations. I saw a couple who had their baby sleep for five hours for the first time. It was a miracle for them. I saw a picture of a couple, friends, all of these are friends, hang gliding in the Alps. I saw a picture of a friend in Venice. I saw incredible joy at a 40th birthday party. I saw a wedding being celebrated. I saw pictures of the Brooklyn Botanical Garden in its glory. And as I read the book of Acts, I feel like it reads like an Instagram feed. You see story after story of just the most incredible things happening. And you go, why is this not my life? Why are dead people not being raised? And why are these things not happening? And, and a handkerchief healing people from sickness? And the whole book of Acts seems to feel like that. And sometimes it's hard to reconcile. And then Luke, who writes Acts, stops and he does what we're looking at today. He describes in a little glimpse the regular, ordinary life of the believers in that day. And we're going to look at that. And what I want to get to as a final point is this. The people that we see described in the book of Acts, the church, as God is growing it, is recognized as distinct. They are just very clearly different from everyone around them. And those distinctives matter. And the result of the gospel being preached, the result of the Spirit of God being poured out, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, is a distinct community that matter where they live. And we're going to see how they get there. Distinctness as the people of God is not something new in the book of Acts. It's something God always intended. As you look through the, uh, the ancient scriptures, the Old Testament, 
all scriptures are ancient actually, the ancienter scriptures of the Old Testament, uh, we see that God intended for his people to stand out, to set an example for uh, the, the world around them. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of blessing. You will be different. You will actually be a blessing to all nations instead of dominating and taking over all nations. In Ezekiel, he speaks about the priests and the people of God. And he says, you will follow all of these rules so that you will show the world the difference between the holy and the common. And he says that us looking, being, living differently actually matters. This goes on through the New Testament, and I'll end with a passage in Revelation that matters a lot to me. It is in Revelation 3, and it is the letters to the churches. You know those letters that we all look at and try to figure out? There's one that I have gotten wrong for most of my life, confession, this is it. In Revelation chapter 3, it speaks to the last church, the church in a place called uh, uh, Laodicea. And... It goes like this, a few verses that you would find pretty familiar. And, the angel of the ch- and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation, listen, I know your works, you are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Anyone heard that before? Pretty famous. The beautiful thing about that scripture is I got it wrong for most of my life. I used it the way that most pastors do who recognize that what they want is they want people in their church who are on fire for Jesus. It's not a wrong ambition to have. People who are passionately seeking the Father with the Spirit of God, just hot, 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 flaming hot. And we basically go, if you are lukewarm, God doesn't want you. He will spit you out of his mouth. You need to be blazing hot on fire for him. And in essence, what that text is teaching is not that. It's teaching, if we just understood it at face value without even digging into the history, it actually doesn't say that cold is bad. It actually says if you're cold or hot, that would be okay. It's only that you're lukewarm that doesn't matter. And uh, to the hearers of that scripture, of that text, this made perfect sense. The reason for it is uh, Laodicea was, was, uh, had one distinctive quality. It, was, it had no uh, natural water resources of its own. So a, little, a few miles to the one side, it had Colossae, which was um, a natural cold spring was in Colossae. This is historians that, has, that have uh, uncovered these things. And then just a little bit up in the, into the mountains was another little town, which is really hard to pronounce, called Hieropolis. And it had sediments that proved that it had its natural hot springs. And they saw in the archaeological findings that there were aqueducts from the one town and from the other town to Laodicea. Now think about this. On a hot day, there would be cold, cold, cold spring water coming from Colossae by aqueduct and reaching the town of Laodicea. And what would happen? The water would arrive lukewarm and it would lose its distinctive quality of coolness to refresh and bring health and healing 
And from the other side, on a cold day, the hot water that comes from the hot springs would cool down. And by the time it got to the town, the water had lost its distinctive healing properties of being warm. Now we read that text. And we realize that the water that flowed into this town that needed it, needed to have its distinctive qualities to matter and to make a difference to the people that received it. And all of a sudden, we hear this text with different ears and we go, okay, when we as the church lose our distinctive qualities, the things that make us who we're supposed to be in the world, the salt of the earth. We, we see that throughout scripture. If salt loses its saltiness, it's worthless. And what the angel is being commended here for, the angel being th- those who lead the church or the person who leads the church, the messenger of God. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. You are basically exactly the same as the city around you, and you don't matter in the works that you do, not in the favor and the love of God, but in the actual effect you have in the world that I've placed you to be in. The distinctiveness of the people of God within the context that they live really matters to God. So the question we are faced with is this. What makes us different from the world? What are the things that actually make us distinct? What are the things that God has in mind? We get a glimpse of that in Acts as we see this church who starts to grow. And if you go through it, you get to Acts 13 and you you hear about the church in Antioch. And it says that's where they first were called Christians. The term Christians was used there first because they didn't coin it. They didn't go, we want you from now on to call us Christians. No, the world around them saw they were so distinctly like Jesus that they could say, are we going to label them Christians like Christ? The church in Acts was radically different from the world. Act 6, where uh, they, they choose the seven to, to fix the dispute between the Hellenist, Hellenistic Jews and the local uh, Jews in terms of uh, the, the food distribution to the widows. That was a very normal cultural, social, racial problem in the day. And the church said, If that is the normal racial tension in our day, we cannot be the same as that. We have to be different. Let's live differently. And they ordered their life differently because the gospel demands it. So in this text, we look at why and how the Holy Spirit, what he does to make us different. Now, I want to remind you of this. Acts is the story of God, his work, I know it's called the Acts of the Apostles, and that is true. It's probably more readily should be called or could be called, as some commentators say, the Acts of God. Because it's God doing the work throughout the book of Acts. It's the story of God's work through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. The story of God's work through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the one thing we see from beginning to end is that the gospel triumphs. It triumphs over uh, persecution. It triumphs over uh, social injustice. It triumphs over disputes between believers and disputes between ministers of the gospel. The gospel still triumphs no matter any opposition that comes its way. 
You and I are sitting here because the gospel triumphed. You and I, if you are a believer, a Christ follower, you sitting here because the gospel triumphed over the greatest opposition that you can possibly imagine through history, and it's still triumphing. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that incredible to sit here thousands of years later knowing that it has stood the test of time? Let's see what happens in this text. The Spirit of God comes, and I want to explain to you as best as I can why the Spirit of God is given. In Acts it's, uh, 1, we're told that God gives us His promise. And the Spirit of God is called the promise of God. And we have a choice day after day to live in the promise or in the past. This is why the Spirit of God, the promise of the Father, was given. The promise of the Father is that He will give us, by the empowering of the Spirit, whatever the situation requires for the good news of Jesus to be communicated and for His kingdom to be extended. The reason I say this is because we often think, We want the Spirit of God and we become consumers or we become uh, utilitarian and we think, give me the Spirit as a tool to get to live how I want to live. Give me the Spirit of God so that I can have the healing. Give me the Spirit of God so I can have the power of God. And I want you to know, I wake up every day and any person in my life who I know of who is sick, I pray for healing. Because I believe that the Spirit of God heals. I believe that God wants to display His power in our day by miraculous signs and wonders. And we need to long for it. We should not not long for it. I also want to say that sometimes the Spirit of God gives us exactly what we need in the situation so that the kingdom can advance. And sometimes that's not healing. Sometimes it's hardship. By the Spirit of God. David, where do you see this? I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure that the gospel brings hardship. Well, it is promised that we would suffer with Christ. But if you look at how the church unfolds in the book of Acts, you look at Acts 8 and you see uh, that the church in Jerusalem was doing so well. Everything. There was healings and miracles and all the things we want when we think of the Spirit of God that was happening. But they were disobeying the very command of God. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. They weren't doing that. Why? Because it was great in Jerusalem. So what does God do? In his sovereign will, he allows persecution to come. Stephen gets stoned, and the church faces incredible opposition. Why? So that his mission can be empowered to the ends of the earth. Sometimes what's happening in your life does not make sense. Sometimes you look at things in your life and you go, this cannot be God. I come against it. And you pray and you fast and nothing changes. Why? Well, it's because you're not doing it right. It's obvious. No. Sometimes it's because God has brought a person, a challenge, a thing into your life that brings you to your knees in such a way to release the power of God for his kingdom to come in ways that it could never come otherwise. We do not have a good theology of suffering 
a good theology of persecution and pain. And at least in that moment, we know that God does not want us to suffer, but he certainly uses it. He certainly uses the most incredible things for the sake of his love reaching the furthest corner of the earth. And so we see that the promise of the Father is that he will give us by the empowering of the Spirit whatever the situation requires for the good news of Jesus to be communicated and his kingdom to be extended. Why is he so committed to it? Because it is the good news of Jesus alone that overcomes every broken situation that we have. I had had an amazing, humbling conversation with my daughter in the car yesterday. It was just me and her. And she kept asking questions. And she, as they do when they're seven years old. And we got to talk about all the amazing things of life, like death and dying and why and how. I remember her saying, I think I mentioned it here before, I was telling her the story of Noah and the ark, and she just couldn't comprehend it, and she was in pain about it. And she said, Dad, why, why? And I I realized I had to talk about genocide and why God allowed suffering and killing. And I was halfway through when she said, no, 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 Dad, I just want to know why the unicorns didn't make it into the ark. (laughs) And I realized I wasn't ready for it. And secondly, I uh, have some time. I I bought some time (laughs) to get ready. God gives us anything by his spirit to make the gospel land in the hearts of our situations because the gospel triumphs, as we said earlier, because Jesus triumphed. He's the only one. Oh, this, this was the point of that story about my daughter. She, uh, we ended up having the conversation, getting to the point where we said, the only thing that man has not beaten is death. It seems. We, we overcome anything. Science and all of those things, and yet that is one thing that humanity has not been able to overcome. Death is for sure. But our Savior has overcome death. His grave is empty. One more contextual piece, just in case you're wondering about my fathering. We were driving through Greenwood Cemetery when she asked about death. And that's how the question came up. And that's how we got to why death matters. So he then, in the, in the midst of all these things that are happening, he gives this text. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as all had in need, as any had need. Day by day, that's where... We just really fail, day by day. There are two books that I really, really love the title of. The one is The Quest for the Radical Middle. I don't know if you've read it. And the second is um, A Long Walk of Obedience in the Same Direction. Because our culture has conditioned us to seek the sensational, to seek the Instagram feed, to seek the highs, and we forget that it's the day by days that matter. My dad has very, very, very few sensational moments in his life, I can just honestly say. 
They, I just can't point to things where I go, my dad did this and he was on stage and he received this prize and he did this and got this promotion and it just wasn't that. My life with my dad, one of the greatest gifts he gave me was the glory of the ordinary. The glory of the day to day going past. And if we can get to a place in our souls where we wake up and the daily sunrise brings joy to our hearts, we're in a good space. The day to day, day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and they ate their food with glad and sincere, generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. You and I, as New Yorkers, devote ourselves to many things. Devotion is a distinctive quality in your life. There are things that you are devoted to. It could be something like Netflix, and I know we can binge a series just like that, and it's gone. That kind of devotion is pretty remarkable in our day. There are, there are financial devotions. There are things that you devote your time, energy, resources to that, that, that deserve your time, energy, and resources. But more than the things that you choose to devote yourself to, there are things that are demanding your devotion. Your job demands your devotion in sometimes very ungodly ways, in ways that overwhelm and overcome, in ways that make you not be able to leave your work at work and come home and be present with your family. There are uh, uh, physical demands in New York like climbing stairs. You have to be ready for it. That's what's going to happen. You have to run for buses. I do that every now and then. And if I miss it, I look for a city bike that I can hop in and catch it on the next thing. We are devoted to a certain lifestyle, and we give a lot of time and energy to it. I am devoted to, in the morning, getting up and checking the, the weather, because anything can happen in New York City. But we give our time, attention, and mental effort to certain devotions, and here it describes what they were devoted to as their primary concerns. I think we could take a lesson from their book. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to breaking of bread, to the prayers. They did experience a supernatural reality, but it was almost incidental to the devotion that they already have. That's what, not what they pursued. That's not what they devoted themselves to. It actually doesn't say they devoted themselves to seeing miracles happen every day. That's not what this text says. There are some things that we can do and there are some things that only God can do, and we are phenomenally good at getting those two mixed up. We are very, very, very good at taking the sovereignty of God into our own hearts and hands and minds. And here it speaks about their devotion to very specific things. Here, is, here are those things. They were devoted to truth. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to practice. They were devoted to a whole new identity as a community, and ultimately they were devoted to Christ. I'm going to make a few comments on each of those, and we'll be done. I'm going to start with Christ. As the underlying distinction of devotion, there was nothing that, dis that, that distinguished themselves more than their devotion to Christ, evidenced by the fact that they eventually were labeled and called Christians, not by themselves, but by outsiders. This is an awkward question because pastors use this kind of thing to manipulate. 
But I do want to say it because it matters in the context of this text. I wonder how many people in my life who are not part of my church circles actually even know that I'm a Christian. That's a convicting thought for me. I had five of my son's um, buddies from school do a sleepover this weekend because we're doing his birthday party. It's not even his birthday, but we're doing it because it's always in the summer and he always misses his birthday party and I feel like an abusive dad for not giving him a birthday party. So to appease my guilt, I said yes to a sleepover party, which is probably an unwise thing to do, but it was, it was great. We had a great time. And there came a moment that I didn't plan for, but it came almost like a conviction into my heart where I thought, I don't know how these young boys, eight years old, are being raised or what they're exposed to. I got no idea. But for almost 24 hours, they're stuck in my home. And I have an incredible privilege to try to set some kind of an example for them. So I went to my son. I didn't plan this. I went to my son. I said, boy, in moments like these, we always take... As a family, you know this, a particular moment to stop and create a sacred moment, a moment that acknowledges the grace of God on your life and in a moment that calls you into a greater level of manhood as you step into being a good man, a Christ-following man. I want to know how you feel about doing that in front of your friends. Should we do it? And I wasn't sure what to expect from him. I was, I was actually very much expecting him to say no. And he's like, yeah, of course. And the childlike faith of just like, I don't care. Just do it. This is amazing. It was incredible. And I wrangled these boys. It was really hard to wrangle the five of them to keep quiet. And we made sure that they knew it was a sacred moment. And they didn't quite know what was happening. My prayer afterwards was truly just that they saw something that they might not see in their home. But... What was beautiful for me was not what I did in the moment. It was what Lincoln did in the moment. He didn't even blink at the idea of being identified as a believer in front of his friends. Not for a moment was it a, oh, I'm not sure. And somehow over time as we grow older and more sophisticated, it becomes an issue. We somehow become ashamed of the gospel that is the good news unto salvation for all who believe. They were not scared to be identified as Christ followers. And that is what the Spirit of God does. Listen to R.C. Sproul. The Holy Spirit always points beyond himself to Christ. If you are a spirit-filled church that does not focus on the ministry of Christ, you are not a spirit-filled church. It is simple. The Holy Spirit is sent to empower the church to bear witness to Christ, to apply the work of Christ on the cross in terms of its redemptive significance to all who believe. Sometimes we go after the Holy Spirit and Christ is not even in the picture anywhere. Just be careful of that. The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He's not just some minion helper that the Father sends to be with us. He is an actual person of the Trinity worthy of worship and honor and worthy of our relationship with Him. But the Spirit somehow in Scripture always points to Christ and glorifies Christ. And that should be a mark of our community. If our community is a Spirit-filled community, we are a community that points to Christ. It is impossible to be a Spirit-filled community and not do that. The last four, truth, 
This is a very non-glamorous thing, and this is spiritual warfare because every day we are confronted. Our truth is confronted with another truth that's given to us by the narratives of, of our time. The truth that we are more important, the truth that, um, that the American dream is the most important thing to live for, the truth that our financial success is what we should devote our time and energy and life to right now. In fact, it says here in this particular context, it says they didn't devote themselves to financial security. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, etc., etc. And the result of that, one of the results in this text is they were just radically generous. Their practices changed. They just gave what gave them financial security away. And they said, let's share that with everyone. I think you and I spend more time with our financial planners and thinking about how we spend our budgets on creating financial security than actually being generous or stewarding the finances that God has given us. They were devoted to the truth, the story of God. The story of God is this. That God in his marvelous grace, in his perfect love, chose to create us, not because he needed us, but because he wanted to bless humankind. He wanted to create us and give himself to us, which he did. We chose to rebel against goodness. We chose to rebel against gifts being given to us and said we can do better at providing for ourselves. We can do better at being God And even in our rebellion, he says, I will still lavish my love on you. I'll first make a covenant with you, and I'll show you through the Israelites what a covenant means, what it looks like when people are in love with Jesus, with God, in such a way as to commit to each other, to give themselves to one another. And then when that proved to be insufficient, not by God's design, but to prove how bad we were at keeping covenants, he said, I will give my son and my love in an ultimate, just lavish display of grace. And, and then he says, now I'm going to, through Christ, restore all things, renew all things, renew the brokenness in the world, renew um, everything that we look at and say, man, I, I don't like this. this. Something's wrong in us. And I'm going to make things, all things new until the end of time where I'm going to reconcile all things to myself and make everything new. And we live by that story, but every day we get told a different story. We get told that whatever you do today doesn't matter. Just do what you like today. Just live according to your preferences today. They devoted themselves to perpetually fill themselves with the truth because they know that the competing narratives out there are strong. I have to ask this question. How are you devoting yourself to the truth assimilating in your heart, just pouring over you the washing of the word of God? Devoting themselves to the truth, devoting themselves to prayer, A prayer life that is truly devoted, where you give your passion, yourself to prayer. Not, I pray before meals. Not, I pray once a week before service when I come. No, a life that is devoted to prayer. I think the the church lacks power because we lack a devotion to prayer. I'm not going to say much more. A distinct practice. The generosity of their time was completely different to what people experienced. Their actual financial practices was distinct 
It was completely distinct from the world around them. And they got known to be distinct in their financial practices. They got known to be distinct in their social equality, in their social justice and injustice that they saw around and how they try to fix that. They were distinct in the way that they gave women value because in their culture, women were often not valued. And Jesus comes and he treats women completely differently, scandalously differently. They were distinct in the value they placed on the people who were in the margins of society. Jesus was not scared to be scandalized for the way that he acted, behaved, and who he loved. He was called a drunkard because he did it. Very distinct from the the religious elite of the day. They had distinct practice, but they also had a distinct identity. And this is not just community. Community is this. Let's get together. Let's make sure that we're not alone in the city. But the fellowship that is spoken of here is a deep kind of fellowship that actually reorders our identity. We actually go, I am no longer just my individual self doing my own thing, but I actually, as my fundamental being, I am now in the family of God. And that changes the way I do everything. If your identity is devoted to being shaped in this way, you cannot look at a brother sitting in the pews here today and not care for their struggles and their pains. It's impossible. You cannot not get involved and say, God, if the family, if one person suffers, I suffer. You have to experience a revolutionary change in the way you see yourself. Now, when the, when, the, when the promise of the Spirit comes, Jesus says this in, in John. He says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I'll give you the Spirit. And the Spirit is the one that helps us cry, Abba, Father. And so I want to just mention this as a prayer um, as we finish. When we learn how to relate to the Father... When we learn how to speak and commune with the Father, things change. And so I want to ask two questions that you can ponder on as we think about this distinctive identity that we have in Christ. The first is, what does the Father want to say to you today? I don't know if you ask that question often, but I want to live in the premise that the Father, based on the Scriptures, wants to reveal Himself to us perpetually. And so I ask, what is the Father wanting to reveal to you? What is he wanting to say to you? Have you stopped, taken a moment of silence and quiet and just thought, God, where are you trying to get my attention? And the second is, what do you want to say to the Father? Seeing as it's Father's Day and we're looking at the Father's gift to us through Jesus, the Spirit of God, what is it that the Father wants to say to you? And what is it that you feel like you want to say to the Father, but you never stopped And you never said, oh God, yeah, I've actually been really disappointed, really hurt and in pain. God, I'm so joyful of these things. I just want to thank you. Father, thank you that you pay attention to us. And so I'm going to give you a few moments just in silence to answer those two questions. To actually ask God, God, Father, if you really want to speak, what is it that you want to say? And then the second one, what do you want to say to the Father this morning? What is it that's on your heart that's burdening you, that's in your mind that you want to just share with the Father who's willing to listen? So I'm going to pray a prayer and then just leave some time for quiet reflection. 
Father, your word says that you are a communicating God. You, you're self-revealing and you reveal yourself in Christ ultimately. And Jesus even said that he does only what you say he must do because he's revealing you to us. I pray right now, even through this morning, would you just come and speak to us and tell us what you want to tell us? As an individual, you care for every heart here. Would you come and speak to us? Come and do it now. There's a, a, a scene in a book that I read to my kids recently called The Horse and His Boy. It's part of the Narnia series. And there's a moment where this boy called Shasta is just walking and he senses a presence with him. And it's Aslan the lion and he's terribly afraid and he doesn't know what to do. And eventually he just speaks and he just says, who are you? And, and the lion says to him in the mist, it's like this misty mountain pass that they're walking on. The lion says... I've been waiting for you to speak to me. As if he's been with him the whole time and he's just been waiting and waiting and waiting. And this surprises the boy and the boy eventually says, asks a few questions. And then the lion says this, he says, tell me your sorrows. That's it, just tell me your sorrows. And I feel like the father wants to wants you to know that he's ready and willing and able to receive your sorrows. If there are broken things in your life that's just causing pain and woundedness, he's saying, bring them to me. I can unburden you. I can unburden you from those things by giving you perspective, by giving you healing by the Spirit of God. So as you do this, um, we're going to come to the table and we are going to receive healing in an ultimate capacity through Jesus and through what he did. So... This text in Corinthians leads us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes as you come know that your relationship with the father the son and the holy spirit is fully and ultimately restored through the act of christ on the cross and as he broke his body and he received rejection from the father and the father turned his face away in that moment and darkness descended he did that so that we would never ever ever have to be rejected by the father 
It's impossible. He cannot reject us no matter how bad our life, our sins are because Christ was rejected for us. That is what it means that Christ came in place of us, took upon himself our sins and the wrath of God to satisfy the Father. Come this morning with absolute freedom that nothing you have done is disappointing enough for there to be a distance between you and the Father, but that his love is freely accessible today for you. If you do not believe in the story that I am talking about, if you do not consider yourself a Christ follower, I ask you to remain where you are. This is a sacred moment. This is an admission of the receiving of grace. This is a symbol like my ring is on my finger saying that I am married and it would be inauthentic for you to come and partake in this because that would not be true. If you want it to be true, if you want to pray with someone today, you can even do that, and there will be people ready to pray for you in the front here that you would recognize. But come as you're ready.